Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Command Space on 5x5. My name is Mike Hurley. I have a very cool show to you today with Mr. Tim Stevens of Engadget. But just before we jump into the conversation, I'd like to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor for this episode, and that is Squarespace.com. He gives you everything that you need to make an amazing website. Squarespace is a fully hosted, completely managed environment for creating and maintaining a beautiful website, blog, or portfolio. It doesn't matter how experienced you are when it comes to building websites, because you can put something online that will look fantastic in minutes. You don't have to worry about any of the nasty stuff like hosting, design, scaling, integrating with other services like Twitter and Facebook, because it's all built right in. You can create fantastic fantastic pages using their page building system called Layout Engine. You can throw all sorts of different elements together like text, videos, social media content, um, photos, whatever you want. You can drag and drop it around the page and make all of your pages look absolutely unique. They have built-in statistics, real-time analytics that are built right into Squarespace. They have iOS and Android apps. Squarespace Commerce, if you want to sell something online, you can add a store to any Squarespace site and sell physical and digital goods. And they have painless store management, inventory staff, order processing, the whole shebang. 24-7 customer support. You get free custom domain names if you sign up for one of their annual plans. Squarespace is amazing. I love them. I use them and have used them for years. And if I was and I'm going to start many more internet projects in my my life online, and Squarespace is the only place that I would go to do that. There's no credit card required to try out Squarespace, and I think you should go give them a shot. Go to squarespace.com, start a free trial. Their plans start at $10 a month for their standard plan, $20 a month for their unlimited plan. You get 20% off that price if you sign up for one year. You'll get 25% if you sign up for two. And I have a new code for you. You can use the code TALLYHO7. That's T-A-L-L-Y-H-O-7 and you'll get 10% off your first order. So go check out Squarespace, everything that you need to make an amazing website. And without further ado, please let me introduce my guest for this episode. It's Mr. Tim Stevens. Hi, Tim. Hi, Mike. It's an honor to be here for your 50th. It is. It's a, I couldn't, couldn't ask for a, for a better guest than you Ah, shucks. Today. So, Mr. Stevens, why don't you tell people what you like to be known for? Wow, that's a good question to start things off with. What I would like to be known for, um, I think writing great content. I mean, that's something that I've always been very focused on. So, um, you know, I always try to write great reviews. It's, it's kind of how I got my start uh, in the world of freelance journalism a long, long, long time ago. Um, so, you know, obviously leading a great team is very important to me uh, and a great site like Engadget. But, um, you know, I still think of myself first and foremost as a writer. How did you get started in writing? Ah, uh, that goes back a long time. So you know, back in uh, back in school, I used to write uh, kind of silly little like uh, gothic horror stories, uh, Lovecraftian inspired things, and uh, I always really enjoyed that. But um, I also really loved computer stuff. Uh, I taught myself programming when I was about six, uh, and kind of hung with that as well through. Uh, through school, uh, and really couldn't make up my mind. Uh, so when I went to to college, I um, I studied both writing and computer programming because again, I couldn't really make up my mind which way I wanted to go. But I was lucky enough in college to uh, well, lucky enough, I guess, to buy a Sega Saturn, uh, which was not exactly a console that a lot of people bought. Uh, and I saw on a news group that um, a website called Games Domain, which was a UK-based uh, gaming site was looking for reviewers of the Sega Saturn, and they couldn't find any because nobody had bought the thing. Uh, so um, by having the console uh, meant that I had a leg up on the competition. Uh, it wasn't a very good leg up, but ultimately it was enough to get me the gig uh, writing um, 
writing video game reviews, which, you know, as a college kid is pretty much a dream job. So uh, at first it was an unpaid co uh, contributor position, but then I kind of um, built that up to be a freelance writer. And uh, after a couple of years, I was freelancing for X-Play and Games Radar and uh, a bunch of other different gaming sites doing uh, video game reviews. And that's kind of how I got my start in the world of, uh, of, of writing things anyway, professionally. So... It seems like video games was like your passion. Are you still a gamer? As much as I can be, yeah. Uh, obviously, um, uh, running a site like Engadget takes a lot of time, and so I don't have anywhere near as much time to game uh, as I would like. Uh, but yeah, I definitely am a gamer. Uh, right now, I'm I'm still kind of working my way through uh, The Last of Us on mm -hmm. um, on the PlayStation Three, and I just uh, just finally became a PlayStation Plus subscriber, uh, pretty much just so that I could download the uh, the new XCOM game, or the most recent XCOM game. So I've been trying to play through that too a little bit. I've had my eye on The Last of Us. It's an interesting title. I wouldn't necessarily say that it deserved all the nine out of ten and ten out of ten reviews that it got. Uh, it's 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 a lot like um, uh, Zombie U on the Wii U, if you ever played that, uh, and that it's kind of a, f a frustrating game in a lot of ways. It's not anywhere near as frustrating as Zombie U uh, is, uh, but still, it's not exactly the um, not exactly the game I was looking for, and it's not nearly as story-driven as I thought it would be either, which is um, also a little bit frustrating. But it is a very good experience, and I recommend it. So you mentioned that, like you know, your, your lineage is is video game uh, reviews and stuff like that. But um, how did you, or did you, start writing about technology? I mean, did, before moving over to Engadget, did you do any like technology based writing? You know, like gadgets and, and stuff like that, or did you move into Engadget having done the video game stuff? Uh it was largely focused on gaming, is my background. So actually, out of college, I graduated in 2000, which was the um, you know the peak of the dot-com era, and I was still torn between writing and, um, and programming. In fact, I thought I wanted to go into video games because I thought I could kind of bring the two worlds together and you know create these amazing worlds. Um, but then, as the dot-com boom was happening, uh, uh, a consulting firm waved a, a large number under my nose, and ultimately, I wound up going into the software world. So, so out of college, actually, my profession was... Uh, was computer programming, and then I worked my way up to design and software architecture, ultimately. Uh, but I always kept up on the freelance writing thing, and then uh, in, I think, around 2005, I started my own blog covering racing games because I wanted to cover a niche that I didn't think anybody else was covering or covering well. So I did that, and I got noticed by a guy named Joshua Frulinger at AOL who was launching a tech blog called Switched, and he was looking for people that he thought were good bloggers. Uh, didn't necessarily have to be experts in the world of consumer technology, but had to be good writers and at least be relatively aware of the space. And I was certainly, you know, loved computers, loved phones, uh, loved uh, technology, uh, so I definitely fit right in there. So in 2007, he um, brought me on to start writing for this blog called Switched, which was basically like... Uh, like Engadget Lite, I guess you could say. You know, it's kind of a version of Engadget for the AOL crowd, as it were. Um, much more focused on um, social news and, um, you know, putting a much more uh, uh, easy-to-parse uh, cover on all the, the, the hard-hitting tech news. Uh, and then in 2008, uh, I got the opportunity to, to kind of jump up to the big leagues uh, at Engadget. And I guess the rest is history. So what was your first uh, position at Engadget? Uh, my first position was just a contributing editor, uh, a freelancer at that. I was still working as a software architect at the time, so I was actually working you know, 14 to 16 hour days uh, in my quote-unquote day job as a software architect. Um, and what I would do is I'd get up at 5 or 6 in the morning, I'd blog for 2 or 3 hours, I'd knock out 4 or 5 posts, 
uh, and then I'd sign on to my um, my day job at about 9 a.m. Uh, but over the years, I started to kind of dial back the consulting that I was doing. So instead of blogging from 6 to 8, I'd blog from 6 to 10, and then from 6 to 8. Uh, and then I was uh, brought on as the automotive editor at Engadget, the first and so far only uh, <laughs> automotive editor at Engadget because I have a love for cars as well. Uh, and with all of the advancements in automotive technology and all of the, the interactions with consumer technology, with uh, infotainment systems and uh, you know systems like Ford Sync that lets you run apps on your phone that control the car, um, I thought that we really needed to be driving more coverage there. Uh, and thankfully, the leadership at Engadget uh, agreed. Uh, and so they brought me on as the auto, uh, the automotive editor. And now you are editor in chief. That's right. Um, so that that took place in the spring of 2011. So I'd been with Engadget for about three years uh, at that point. Uh, and yeah, uh, as as has been well publicized, there was a uh, a bit of a, a loss of leadership at Engadget in the beginning of 2011. And they were looking for for somebody new. They looked at a bunch of candidates, um, and I rather brazenly put my name into the hat, just because ultimately, even though I wasn't exactly the most experienced at Engadget, not by long shots, um, I did feel like the things that I learned in the in my career outside of writing would be pretty valuable. Uh, so as a software architect, which is what I was doing as a consultant, uh, I was overseeing. Um, multiple software designers and then uh, lots of software developers as well on these big multi-million dollar projects. And, you know, that's a lot of people to manage. That's a lot of personalities to manage uh, mm -hmm. and ultimately a lot of pressure and a lot of expectation. Um, and my job was really at that point to kind of be, be the, inter the intermediary between the, the giant company that was paying the bills and this small elite team of very talented people who are trying to get the work done. Uh, and so my job was basically to keep that elite team very focused on the job at hand and to keep them from getting kind of compromised by the big corporate structure that at this point was burdening itself so much that it needed to go out and hire this consulting firm because they couldn't get things done on their own. Um, and so I believe that that skill was very applicable to Engadget. And, uh, and I still believe that to this day. So that, I think, was one of the, the, the selling points that I, uh, I best utilized in, in my pitch to, uh, to take over the site. And it was a successful pitch, as, as we now know. Yes, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. So I've, I've always wondered, like, um, because I've never, I've never really worked in blogging. I've you know, especially never really, well, not, not never, I've never been a, a, wrote anything for a site the size of, you know, Engadget or, or something like that. But what, what is the, like, the role of an editor-in-chief? Like, what do you do on a daily basis? Uh, as on a day-to-day -day basis, I do not, never the same thing twice, I guess. I'm trying to think of a, a witty way to say it. But ultimately, it's a very different job every day. Um, ultimately, my job is to put out fires and to solve problems, um, which thankfully I'm, I'm quite good at. Uh, I've always been a good problem solver, probably because I played so many video games as a kid. Um, but, uh, you know, it's never the same problem twice. It, 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 it's a lot of um, working with a lot of very talented people with a lot of very strong opinions about what is good uh, and, and basically keeping the whole team together and making sure that everyone is motivated and everyone's moving in the same direction. Uh, that's a, a huge challenge that cannot be, cannot be understated. Uh, so that's a big part of my job is making sure that everybody's happy or as happy as can be and everybody's on track to, you know, follow their own career path and, and to create great content for the site. Uh, I also, as the editor-in-chief, deal a lot with uh, the business, so AOL, uh, dealing with the sales team, working with them to determine what is acceptable and what is not. You know, we don't do advertorial. We don't do any sort of um, 
product integration or anything like that on the site. So there's constant discussions about what is allowable, what is not allowable. Yeah. You know, is, is this banner ad too distracting for the users? Uh, is this popover going to be too annoying? Uh, that sort of thing. So I'm in discussions like that quite a bit too. Um, but I'm a writer, so you know I try to uh, try to do as much writing as I can. Uh, I do reviews of a lot of the the, the top tier smartphones and tablets and that kind of thing. Uh, and so I try to try to find time to to do reviews and do as much writing as I can. So do you like as the as the editor in chief? Do you get to pick the sorts of things that you you know? So like, so like say for example, you want to review the next big Android phone or whatever. Do you get to be like, guys, that's mine? <laughs> uh, I do, as a matter of fact, which is nice. The problem is I don't always have time for that. So so it, it depends on what's going on. Uh, I mean, if, if we're doing something like planning for our Expand event, which is coming up this fall, or if we're, um, you know, if something big is going on, uh, then, you know, I'm wise enough at this point to know that I shouldn't take that on because ultimately if I do this review of this top shelf device and I take that out of the hands of Miriam or Brad or someone else on our team, uh, then that's going to mean that I'm probably not going to be getting much sleep for the next week or two. Uh, <laughs> and I may or may not do as good a job at the review as they will. So it's, you know, it's a job of managing my own expectations and being realistic with myself about my availability. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I certainly do have the privilege to, to say that if I want to, uh, but I try not to take things out of the hands of those who, uh, who really want to do the reviews. I guess does the same go for events, like if there's a keynote or something that you want to cover? Uh, there definitely is, yes. And uh, I try to be there for live logs for what I consider to be very, very major events. Uh, ultimately, I can't travel as much as I'd like to. Uh, I tr- I, as a matter of fact, I'm forced to travel more than I would like to. So uh, I can't you know, be everywhere all the time. But obviously, for a major keynote for something like WWDC, uh, I try to always be there for those. Or for some kind of major product launch, I try to be there to do the live blog for those events. Uh, but again, you know, I, I try to be realistic with my time, and, and me flying across the, the country means I'm probably unavailable for a good chunk of a day, mm-hmm. uh, and that means that I'm going to come back to a huge overflowing inbox, uh, and that's, uh, that's no fun. I can't even imagine how <laughs> I have, many I have emails. filters in Gmail for days. I have hundreds of filters for hundreds of people trying to take all this mass of pitches that I get all day long and filter them into channels that I can parse and... It's, it's it's a lot of email for sure. I'm sure you could like package that system and sell it, and like like this is the editor in chief rule system. You know, that is a good idea. As a matter of fact, uh, yeah, I've got um, literally I, I have hundreds of filters in Gmail that um, you know they they pick out the the companies that I contact with directly or, or that you know are launching important things, and put them in the appropriate label, and everything else kind of gets dumped into this these two folders: one that's high priority, the other one that's low priority. Uh, and I try to clean those out every day. So it's it's the kind of thing that I've been building for years, and it helps to keep me sane. But ultimately, there's no you know there's no solution to getting 600, 700, 800 emails a day uh, that doesn't involve a lot of time reading email. So over the over in, in recent years, like there's been a big overhaul in gadget. Like there was a split of the team, which you mentioned earlier, um, right. and you know a bunch of people went on to create the Verge and. Ryan Block has come back, who was sort of the site's founder and, and, and you know editor emeritus. But you know, in, well, we, Peter Rojas is the founder, to be to be clear. So it was Peter oh, yes. Rojas who founded the site in two thousand four, uh, and then Ryan Block was the uh, second editor in chief of Engadget. Okay, thank you for correcting me. You're quite welcome. Um, but you're sort of pressing on. Um, you know, you you full steam ahead in Engadget, and you guys are doing loads of really exciting and interesting things. I just want what what Thank do you, you see in gadget as now like what is in gadget to you? Um, 
so yes, I, I am the the fourth editor in chief of Engadget, uh, and it's definitely was a big challenge to take over the site um, in 2011. That there were a lot of changes, a lot of folks were were leaving to go to, to the Verge, and uh, some folks were going elsewhere as well. Um, so we did need to build up a new team, but obviously we needed to maintain Engadget. You know, I. In, in my years at Engadget, became very attached to the brand and very, very attached to the voice and very attached to, to what the site was. Uh, and I felt, you know, a very personal mission to to keep it as as great as it always has been. So, so you know, I wasn't going to let it fail. So when we were hiring people, uh, we, we made sure that we hired really great writers and we've definitely continued to, to, to do so. And we made sure that we didn't compromise on our training. Uh, Engadget's kind of always had like a legendarily difficult training process that, that a lot of people wash out from. It takes months to, to get approved to, to be able to write content and submit content without it going through an editor. And that's something that was, you know, very, very tempting to to, to throw away when we were trying to hire on a lot of people. Uh, but ultimately, we stuck with it, and I think the site is, is better for it. So so what is Engadget now? I mean, it's it's ultimately still a consumer tech blog. People before me have kind of recoiled at the, the word blog, uh, and ultimately, it's true that we do a lot more than a blog. We have a uh, a monthly Engadget show that we do. We have a series of events that we do. We have a tablet magazine. Um, so obviously we are more than a blog, but but Engadget at its core is is still a tech blog. And we strive to be the best when it comes to covering news. And we also strive to be the best when it comes to uh, reviews and events coverage and everything else. Um, so, you know, I still see us very much in that core of that consumer technology coverage and the consumer technology blogdom. And I guess the the interesting thing for you, right, is when you when you moved into to the role, you got to sort of craft Engadget as your own. You had like a, you know, in in a lot, you're bringing on new people and stuff like that. So you kind of had a a bit of a sort of a fresh start. Yeah, we certainly did, and we had a lot of leverage too at that point uh, for obvious reasons. And we had uh, Ariana Huffington was uh, my boss at the time, who who was very very willing to to let us experiment and do what we wanted to do. Uh, and so because of that, we were very, very easily able to launch things like our tablet magazine, Distro, which was kind of my pet project coming in that I really wanted to do. Uh, and I'm pretty proud of, of how that's come out. I mean, it, I think it's a, a great magazine that we haven't missed an issue that we publish every week. Uh, you know, I'm really proud of that, too. It looks fantastic. Um, so I was definitely able to shape the team how I wanted to, but obviously I couldn't change the nature of what Engadget is, and I didn't want to. You know, I didn't want to change the voice. I didn't want to change the color of the site. I didn't want to get rid of the goofy photoshops that we do on the site. You know, I didn't want to get rid of the, the cheesy headlines and things like that. That's that's a part of what Engadget is. And so uh, myself and Darren Murph, who's my managing editor, who, um, who stayed on with me as well, we worked really hard to make sure to instill kind of the core values of of Engadget to make sure that they um, that they stayed true. But when it came to the structure of the team, we're vastly different than how we were before. It was basically just a group of, of editors, all of whom were working way too many hours uh, and trying to do everything at once. Um, we're now at a size, we're over 30 staffers and probably about another 20 freelancers on top of that, um, where we can afford to be specialized. So we have people who are focused on video, people who are focused on audio, uh, people who are focused on reviews, people who are focused on news, uh, which is something that we didn't have before. And I think having those specialists has, has made us a better site because we can have people who, who can bang out a news post quickly, and we can have people who are well-regarded when it comes to reviewing laptops and tablets. Where do you, or how do you envision Engadget's place in in sort of tech, the tech blogging world? Do you mean currently, or, or in the future, or just um, in general? 
currently and then in the future. That was actually going to be my next question. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely see us at at the forefront. Uh, I think that we are a respected player in terms of both news coverage. Uh, We don't hit a leak. We don't hit a rumor until we're very, very confident. Uh, And and if you look at um, Tracker, for example, we're right there at the top when it comes to um, posting leaks and posting rumors and that kind of thing. Uh, and we're, we're also making sure that we're, you know, checking with sources and making sure that the things that we hear are legit. So I, I like to think that we are very trusted when it comes to posting rumors. If we post something, and I think that uh, that you can believe it. And I think that we are also very trusted when it comes to reviews. And I think more so now than ever with the, uh, you know, I don't want to throw any mud at CNET, but ultimately there's definitely been some concerns there since yes. the uh, the CES um, happenings last year. Uh, and I think that's you know that's something that again we've we've always had very comprehensive reviews, and that's something that I've worked really hard on uh, with my couple of years as editor in chief to to formalize the review process and to formalize the benchmarks and to make sure that our reviews are are taken to a new level. And I think that's something that again people know that they can come to Engadget, uh, and if we write a review, that we you know worked worked our asses off to make sure that that device is comprehensively covered, uh, and that the review has has a solid balanced opinion. So, in gadget, in the future, what does that look like? It's a magical place full of unicorns and <laughs> iPhones that haven't been released yet. Um, no, I, I, I mean, like I said, in gadget is a tech blog, uh, and I'm okay with that. But ultimately, the world of blogging is evolving, uh, as, as we can all see. You know, people want uh, people want more interesting future content. People want more deeper dive stuff, and, and we're going through making changes on the staff to enable us to have the time and to have the resources to be able to do those sorts of things. Um, so I think the Engadget of the future will will still be have a strong focus on news as ever. But I think you'll see us be smarter about how we cover that news. So um, stories that maybe aren't that exciting to everybody, um, maybe we'll have a little bit less length to them, for example. Um, the, the, so for example, uh, some Android point release coming to an HTC phone might not be a fully built out post, for example, but it might be up and online a lot more quickly than it was before. Uh, but you might see us spend a lot more time when it comes to really important stories, um, whether it be very important lawsuits or things like Prism uh, or any other major stories. Um, so what we're doing now is really looking at where we spend our time and how much of that um, time really goes into creating great content uh, that our, our readers want to um that readers want to read, and how can we be a bit more productive about that? So, so I think you'll, you'll see us experimenting with different lengths of content, different types of content, and then of course with different types of presentation as well. Um, part of the reason why we brought Ryan and Peter back was to get some of the technology that Gadget has. Uh, they've got a great product database. They've got a lot of great community there as well, and a lot of great developers, uh, all of whom are now kind of part of the family. Um, so you can expect to see a lot of great technology when it comes to the presentation of, uh, of our content too. That's awesome. I mean, I love that the stuff that uh, GDGT or that they did, you know, and uh, yeah. it would be good to see that sort of stuff integrated into engagement. Yeah, and it's, it's such a complimentary fit too. If you look at their community and, and their product database and, and our site when it comes to the editorial content, uh, yeah, I'm I'm really excited about the, the about the future there for sure. So you you know you've been writing in in the industry for for some time now, and you know you've been involved in the sort of the industry at large for a while. How has the focus changed? I mean, obviously you've got things like desktop to mobile. Is is that like a big a big sort of shift? Was that a huge shift in the way this sort of stuff was covered? 
It definitely is a huge shift, yeah. Uh, we've, we're also seeing huge shifts in terms of the c consumption patterns, too. You know, desktop traffic used to be the only thing that we worried about. Uh, and now, you know, if I want to get an accurate representation of my traffic, I have to look at, um, you know, desktop traffic, mobile traffic, mobile web, mobile app, uh, Flipboard, and everything else. Um, so that fragmentation is something that we cover, of course, but it's also something that affects us directly. Um, but certainly, it, it, it's definitely changed the way that we... That we write our news has definitely changed the nature of the news that we write, um, and, so, and the tone of the, the discussion has changed a lot too. I mean, a couple of years ago, people didn't really have um, these close attachments to to brands and to companies like they do now. At least not with as many brands. I mean, there's always been people who love Apple, and and there've always been people who who are more of a Microsoft fan. Uh, there have been Linux zealots for a long time now, <laughs> but but ultimately, you know, we've seen a lot of really ardent fans for 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 Nokia, for HTC, for Samsung. Um, there are people who who play this this game like they would be watching professional sports, uh, and and that's you know has meant that we have to be be aware of that and cover cover these stories in such a way that even if it's something that affects the way that one company relates to another one and doesn't necessarily relate to the industry or the devices itself. Uh, but if it's the way those two companies interact with each other that's being affected, um, that's a story for us now, which may or may not have been a story a couple of years ago. Um, so that's definitely changing the tone of things. And we see a lot more coverage about, you know, um, patent lawsuits and kind of snippy fights between CEOs and things like that. Um, that, I think, will probably continue to be more common uh, in the coming years, too. Do you think that in today's, you know, 2013, it's enough to just cover technology or do you want to branch out more or do your readers call for more, like I don't know, like movies and stuff like that? We do want to branch out more, but I think it's important that we remember that we are a consumer technology blog. Um, I, I, I think The Verge is a great site in a lot of ways, but I do think that there is a lot of confusion about what The Verge is, and I don't want anyone to ever be confused about what Engadget is. I mean, we are very focused on consumer technology, and, and you know that's, that's what made us what we are, and that's what we'll continue to be. Um, but ultimately, consumer technology touches a lot more things than it used to, which which is, I, I think, the important line for us. So again, you know, I was the first automotive editor at Engadget, and a lot of people think, well, why does Engadget need somebody focused on cars? Uh, but that's because car technology is is booming. There's so much innovation happening now in cars, uh, whereas 10 years ago there was absolutely nothing happening at all. Whether you're looking at smartphone integration or um, electric drivetrains or uh, fuel cells, um, so that is forcing us to branch out into areas like automotive technology. We're also being pushed to cover more when it comes to the world of uh, apps and, and social media and that kind of thing too. Because we were, we've always been focused on the hardware, but ultimately the potential of the hardware is really only unlocked by software. And that's much truer now than it was a couple of years ago. Apps and software have always been important, but the experience of your device is much more driven by the quality of the software now than it was a couple of years ago. Uh, so for that reason, we're definitely pushing out more into the world of, of covering app launches and covering interesting apps that catch our eye. But again, I think that's a very natural uh, expansion of our coverage. And then there's also the maker scene, which is definitely something that is hugely important and more important now than it was a couple of years ago. Again, because we have things like Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Uh, before, if you created a cool robot or a cool project, you could post a video online and we would probably write about it and it'd be cool. Uh, but now, if you create a cool robot, you can post it on one of those sites uh, and you can sell it and you can make a million dollars. And then people can go and buy that device. And suddenly, instead of being just a cute video online, now it's an actual product. 
Uh, and it being a product, you know, again, changes the way that we cover it. Now maybe it's something that we review or go to a show and get hands-on with, or maybe it's something that we hack and do something fun with. Um, so again, those are things that we might not have done a couple of years ago, uh, but because of the way the market's changing, uh, something that uh, that I think is the right thing for us to do. I agree. Like that, those all of those things are natural extensions, and the industry will change, and things will be added on. Um, but I agree with you. Like that, there is, um, you know, like with, with the Verge, for example. Like not to, you know, we're not frying stones or whatever. But of course not. There is a. There can be sometimes a confusion in in what the the what you're getting. Like you know, you might get movie coverage or like I don't know national tragedy coverage and stuff, and it can be a bit. Like, why is this here? Right. Um, I, I don't want folks to go to Engadget.com and ask why is this here um, without at least reading the article and finding out the context that we're putting th this product in. I mean, you're going to see some car reviews coming up in the next couple of weeks where some people will probably ask, well, why are you doing this car review? Um, but, you know, through the course of the review, you'll realize that there is a lot of interesting technology about this car. Uh, we're doing some features, again, that are a little bit broader reaching than, uh, than before. But ultimately... It all ties back to this love for for consumer technology and for advancement in that space, and that's something that we're all at Engadget very very passionate about, and that's something that we you know we remain focused on. Can will you allow me to compliment your site for a moment? Uh, you sure you may. Uh, when I go to Engadget, I know what's new and I can read it. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, we, we've we've had a lot of discussions about content presentation, and obviously the traditional blog role format uh, has its challenges. Um, you know, if if I spend five minutes writing a news post uh, and I get it online and it's up in the top of the page, it will spend exactly the same amount of time on the page as a feature or a review that I might have spent the better part of two weeks two weeks working on, uh, and that is definitely a challenge that that bloggers have dealt with for you know for decades at this point. And we have ways around it, and we're going to continue to evolve the, the presentation of the site um, to make it easier for us to, to highlight things like that. But, but ultimately, you know, we realize that, that for someone who wants to read the news, uh, it's very important for them to know exactly where they left off. Uh, so we'll definitely be looking at, as we make changes to the site, and of course we will continue to evolve the, the design of the site. Um, that's definitely first and foremost on, on my mind is to make sure that the site is very easily readable, that you can always know where you left off and that you will not have to worry about missing a story or you won't have to have something thrown in your face uh, for days and days on end that you don't want to see. That's what I love about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Glad to hear it. So what's next? Like, what do you, you know, you've, you've got like the magazine and, and the events and stuff. Like, is this a, a big thing for Engadget going forward? Like, are you looking at, you have the, the, the site and that's great, but like branching out into other avenues and things like that, is that something that you guys are looking to continue or maybe grow in the future? Maybe more like of the uh, video and audio stuff as well? Definitely, we're looking to branch out into those areas uh, for sure. Um, we have the staff and we're, we're looking to continue to build the staff to be able to do more and better video. And I think over just the past year, uh, if, if you've been watching our video reviews and our video features, the quality of those has gotten much, much higher and we look to continue to, to drive that and push that forward and to launch new video properties to go along with that. So video is definitely something that you'll see more of 
and better on the site over the next year. Um, events are definitely a huge thing, and again, that's something that, that came along with the Gadget acquisition, which I'm real excited about. Um, Gadget has always done a series of events in different cities around the U.S., uh, and sometimes internationally, too, um, that have always been really fun, and they work really well as in Gadget meetups, too. So so we just did our, our second in Gadget plus Gadget event. Uh, that one was in New York last week. And so we're going to look to do a lot more of these kind of small events in different cities around the U.S., and hopefully we'll do more internationally as well. Um, so I'm excited about that. Uh, and then, yeah, we'll continue to build out the Expand series of events, which is our new kind of hallmark um, events for thousands of people. Uh, we're now doing two of those a year, but uh, I think that uh, if indeed things continue to go well, as indeed they have, uh, we'll look to be doing more events in more places, uh, more big events like Expand in more places. Um, it, it's definitely something that we've wanted to do for a very long time. Uh, Darren and I have been talking about doing these big events f for years now, but it wasn't something that we really had the resources to pull off until this year. Um, and now that it's been a success, you know, we find ourselves with more resources so we can do that more and we can do that better. So definitely video uh, we'll continue to see more of, events we'll continue to see more of. Um, and uh, as far as what else, um, well, I mean, I think apps are as important as ever. And so I think we're going to be looking to do some, some nice changes on the app front as well to make our news a little bit more personalizable and a little bit easier to digest too. I mean, nobody even knows where to go to read their news anymore. <laughs> how, has the, how has that been for you? Like, you know, I'm sure that your that the Engadget RSS feed is a world traffic feed. Um, like, have you had like, I mean, I know it's only been a couple of days since Google Reader shut down, but I'm sure you guys have been ramping up to it. Like, have you had any issues or any sort of major concerns about what was going to happen come July 1st? Not so much. Uh, we have. Definitely, we have a huge amount of traffic from RSS, um, hundreds of thousands and millions of, uh, of views each day. Um, and a lot of that was, of course, through Google Reader. Um, but, but, but ultimately, there are a lot of RSS readers out there. And we've seen a shift away from Google Reader um, and moving more toward things like uh, Flipboard and other news consumption services like that, which I think a lot of people, uh, certainly a lot of the more casual people, prefer because it gives you much, uh, a much more visually pleasing uh, presentation of your news anyway. Uh, so we've seen huge growth on on Flipboard. Uh, we were the first to hit a million subscribers on Flipboard. Wow. Um, and we were for a long time the single biggest property on Flipboard, which is, uh, you know, something that's exciting for me because we never we never marketed that. We never pushed that. We never, you know, ran a post on the site. Hey, you know, check us out on Flipboard. Um, so we are definitely seeing our content being consumed in a lot of different places, which for me is very, very exciting because that means we've, you know, we're covering all our bases. We've got apps on all the major platforms and, and all that great stuff. Um, but for the, the sales team, of course, it poses a bit of a challenge because instead of just selling a banner ad on the desktop, now they need to worry about making sure we're covered on Flipboard, making sure that all the apps are covered, making sure that our tablet magazine is covered, and making sure that we're, you know, making some money on all these platforms so that we can then turn around and pay to make all the great content uh, that we like to continue to make. So before I, before I let you go today, I'd like to talk a little bit about Google Glass. Uh, certainly, I can talk about that. Um, because, I mean, I, I really enjoyed, you have, you have a great review, but I think um, I really enjoyed the coverage that you were doing um, with sort of your sort of, I've received Google Glass. I can't remember what the name of the posts were. I'll, I'll find uh, one of them for the show notes. But where you were living like, with Google Glass was this series. That was it. Living with Google Glass, and, and I really loved the videos um, because it was like seeing things through your perspective, and it was the first that I'd seen because I believe you got a pair quite early on. 
Yes, I was, as far as I know, the first person in New York State, other than Google employees, of course, uh, to get to get Glass. And yeah, I was definitely the first review up, and it was an interesting device to review because typically, you know, if we get a smartphone, if we need to rush, and if it's kind of a predictive update, we can, we, or predictable update, rather, we can get a review turned around pretty quickly. Um, but with Glass, obviously, it was a different story because it wasn't a device we'd ever reviewed before. It wasn't close to anything we'd re- reviewed before. Uh, and so I had this device, and, and I, you know, I knew I was in this, this great position to have it early, uh, and I wanted to get some content out there because I knew people were really excited about Glass, and they really wanted to know what it was like to use. But I didn't feel comfortable writing the review yet because, you know, I had just gotten the thing, and I, I didn't really know how it would fit into my life. Um, so that's where that series of articles came from. I wanted to get my experience out there so people could see what Glass was like to use, but I didn't feel comfortable making any conclusions about Glass yet. Um, and so that's that was just kind of an organic, uh, uh, you know, diary, more or less, of my experiences. And those have uh, trailed off, as you've probably seen, because I'm honestly not wearing glasses as much as I used to. So that's why. But there there will still be some some more updates to come, though, on that front. I feel like that was the right way to do it, right? Because it meant that you didn't have to commit to opinions too soon. And it meant that your readers got what they wanted, which was coverage of Google Glass. That's what we wanted to see from you. Right. And, you know, the readers wanted to see what it could do and, and what the video quality was like in low light and what the video quality was like in, in good lighting and how does a hangout work and what does that look like? Uh, you know, how, how big is the, the headset and uh, is it obtrusive? Do you get stopped in the street? Those are questions that I was getting constantly on Twitter and Google+. Plus. Uh, and so I wanted to, to be able to address those, and I think that was the, the best way to do it. And you answered some that people maybe hadn't thought of, like what is it like to wear Google Glass inside of a crash helmet? Yes, yeah. Uh, I, I was out in California at the time um, for the, the XPRIZE Visioneering Conference, uh, and I had an opportunity to take a, a certain Ducati for a test drive. Uh, and so I thought, man, this is a beautiful motorcycle. Uh, I know I've got some some fans who love bikes too, so wouldn't it be great if I could take them along for a ride to the canyons? Uh, so I not only recorded some footage while I was wearing glass of me on the bike, but I actually tried to do a live hangout while I was on the bike uh, with, with some of my followers on Google+, Plus, so they could actually be on the bike with me live as I was riding, uh, which in retrospect is not a great idea. Um, but the idea, I thought at the time, was good. So I started the hangouts, and I was like, I, I was right in front of this great twisty canyon road that I knew was amazing. Uh, so I started the hangouts, and a couple people joined in, and as soon as I got in the canyon, my cell phone signal dropped, and boom, that was in the hangout. So I think it lasted maybe 15 seconds. Um, but for those 15 <laughs> seconds, you know, it was, it was I think, the first hangout from the back of a motorcycle. So, you know, I'm pretty proud of that still. So you mentioned that you're not using it daily at the moment. Um, why is that? Like, what's changed for you? Uh, a couple things. For one thing, um, when I'm at my desk, when I'm at my computers, um, it's just not something that really adds a lot to, to my day-to-day life. So, you know, I can see an email. I've got two monitors here, and I always have Gmail up on one of them. So if I get an email, I see it instantly. If I get a direct message, it pops up. Um, if someone messages me on Facebook or, or Google+, again, I get notifications for all that stuff. Um, so I don't really need it for that. And obviously, if I'm sitting at my desk... I don't need navigation anywhere. I don't need rec- restaurant recommendations. Um, so a lot of the, the cards functionality that, that is great in Google Glass when you're out and about um, isn't really useful at all if you're just kind of sitting at home. So not wearing it at home meant I kind of got out of the habit of putting it on. But also the other problem is when you are out and about and when you're walking around the streets uh, where Glass can actually be really helpful, at that point, you start getting stopped all the time uh, because people are asking, hey, is that glass? Uh, you're the first person I've seen. Can I try it out? What can you do with it? Uh, and I love to give people the opportunity to try it because it is 
still so rare and, and so many people are very excited about it. So I'd always stop and let people try it on. But then that meant that I couldn't get anywhere because, you know, everywhere I went, I had to stop. Uh, and if I was late for a train or late for a meeting, uh, that obviously doesn't create a good situation. And I didn't want to be the guy who said, no, 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 I'm sorry. I can't let you try this on. I have to go. Um, so I stopped wearing it in public for that reason, too. So if I'm not wearing it at home and I'm not wearing it in public, um, then that doesn't really leave a lot of places to, to wear it, honestly. So you're saying a little sort of about the privacy stuff. Do people around you act strangely? Like if they see that you were wearing it? They definitely did, yeah. Uh, it, it definitely created a bit of a barrier between me and whoever I was talking to. So, uh, so for example, right after I filed the review, uh, I made a point of taking my wife out to dinner and leaving glass at home, uh, which she was very thankful for. Um, it, it, I think that when you're talking to somebody wearing glass, at, at least at this point, they're not really sure if they're if you're they're paying attention to you. So, you know, they're not sure if you're reading an email or or you know looking at tweets or something else. And it is pretty hard to tell, uh, especially because. Glass is constantly chiming at you and trying to get your attention. And so your eye kind of very instinctively looks up. And certainly you can do that without ignoring the person that you're speaking with. And certainly better than taking your phone out of your pocket and looking at that while someone's talking to you. Uh, but but still, it does create a bit of a barrier and it makes people a little bit uh, less comfortable talking around you. And, and there were certainly situations where, you know, I was talking with CEOs of companies and they were telling me things uh, on background uh, where they would ask me two or three times, usually kind of jokingly, but ultimately they wanted yeah. to know, are you recording this now? You know, are, are you sure this is off the record? Uh, and that's something that people have to ask because ultimately with Glass, there's, there's really no way to tell if you're recording them. Um, so it definitely did make people a little bit more... Uh, a little bit more cautious uh, wearing glass, and uh, so I, I definitely feel better. If I'm having a face-to-face -face conversation with somebody, whether it be a casual conversation or a more serious conversation, uh, I do think at this point it, it is better to have glass off. Will that change in the future? I think it will uh, when these things get to be more common. But right now, yeah, people act differently for sure. The first time I'd had any interaction with, with Google Glass was in San Francisco at WWDC. And, I mean, I, mean, I tried it on because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to see what it was like. I think a lot yeah. of, you, probably everybody you met was asking to try them on, right? Because <laughs> it seemed yep. like if there was a pair of Google Glass at a party, it it was just passed around. It was like pass the parcel. It was insane. Absolutely, yeah. I have so many pictures of me uh, showing somebody how to yeah. wear a glass and how to, I have probably two or 300 pictures of me like explaining how to use the interface of glass at this point. So absolutely very true. And... Um, I mean, and, and what I noticed was you, you can kind of tell when the screen is on um, because you can kind of see like what's look a light. But I guess the camera, you know, you, you can never really be 100% sure if somebody's taking a picture or a video of you. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, to me, it's not a concern and I don't mind and I'll have a conversation with somebody wearing glass um, and I think that's okay. But ultimately, it is very difficult to tell if someone is recording or taking a picture. You can, If you know what to look for, you can tell. But if you don't know what to look for, then you can't tell. And you know, the vast majority of people out there don't know what to look for, and they never will, and they shouldn't really have to know what to look for. Google should just put a blinking red LED on the front and be done with it, and then that'll solve the problem. Um, but uh, it's definitely a concern for a lot of people out there. Again, not for me, I don't mind. Um, but a lot of people are concerned by that sort of thing, and, uh, and I'd love to see Google do something, um, something to address it. Yeah, I mean, we'll have to wait and see, right? I mean, you know, it is early, right? You know, this is this is like beta hardware, which is a peculiar thing. Um, but do you think that, I mean, is this the right device? Like, in, in your opinion, is there anything that could be done to make it better, less intrusive, or maybe doesn't need to be less intrusive, but, you know, is this things that can be done to people don't feel so awkward around it? 
Yeah, and there are certainly a lot of things that, that can be done, and I think Google is, is doing them as we speak. If you look at the history of Glass and all the prototype devices that led up to the version that we have now, um, over the span of about two years, Google turned Glass from this massive contraption with uh, a Nexus phone kind of duct taped to a pair of Oakleys uh, and a laptop trackpad on the other side and turn that into what we see now is a relatively small and lightweight device. And they did that over the course of two years, but we've had the current version of Glass that, that they're selling now for about the past year. That's the version that Sergey wore on stage at Google I.O. last year. And there really hasn't been any advancements since then uh, that we've seen. But I, I'm you know convinced that Google has, over those past 12 months, been making the same rapid pace of, acceler- of, of development that, we've, that we saw in the two years before. Uh, and so that the version that I think Google has now behind closed doors is, is probably a lot smaller than what we have for sale. Uh, and I'm pretty excited to see what that looks like. But certainly it needs to be smaller. Uh, certainly it needs to be uh, a bit more fashionable. And with partner- partnering with Luxottica and with other eyeglass manufacturers, as Google is rumored to be doing, uh, I think that that will certainly help in that regard. Um, if it's a little bit more fashionable, if it's not quite as big, obviously that's, that's going to be a big concern. And if they can integrate it into a fairly standard-looking set of eyeglasses frames, that's obviously the ideal situation. And ultimately, I don't think that we're far from being able to do that. There are a lot of glasses frames out there right now, I think, that are almost big enough as is to be able to encapsulate all of the programming of the system on the chip, the memory, uh, and then if you can hide the battery behind the ear, then again, you can probably put this into a reasonably normal-looking pair of glasses. The only missing piece will be that, that lens array, basically, the actual display itself. Right now, that is pretty big and it hangs off the front of the glass. If Google can find a way to integrate that into a pair of normal glasses, I think that right there would more or less get rid of the the distraction. Because while people are concerned that you're recording them, people are also just kind of visually distracted. Somebody told me that it's like I have a third eye and they can't not look at this third (laughs) eye. Um, And I think it's just the fact that I've got this big thing hanging off my face that is distracting to people and it makes them, you know, a little bit less likely to uh, to talk freely. Yeah, I mean... What's sort of the last question about this, and, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, it seems like Google Glass is the poster child for wearable computing. Yeah. Um, do you think that like wearables are, are the future? They are the immediate future, I think. Uh, people are getting to be a little bit tired with smartphones and tablets at this point. Um, And so this is the beginning of not a new product category by any means, but ultimately a product category that that is ready for reinvention. And I think that's what we're about to see. Um, So Glass is certainly the the poster child when it comes to something something approaching augmented reality and um, the kind of thing that we've seen in science fiction for a long time, which is exciting. Uh, But Apple, you know, they've got the iWatch coming up, which is going to be very exciting too. Uh, and so it's going to be an interesting battle between do people want to access their information um, on the wrist or do they want it kind of thrown in their face on Google Glass? Uh, or is there some other alternative maybe that somebody else is going to come up with that will that will make it even more easy to get to that information? Um, but ultimately, wearable technology is going to be, I think, the next big shift when it comes to the consumer electronics world, when it comes to... You know, driving profits and driving sales and driving excitement ultimately, which is which is the big thing for us. I mean, we we get excited about products. We know our, our readers do too. And Glass is you know the most exciting product to be released in the past couple of years, even though it is a beta. Uh, and so I'm excited to see what what the iWatch looks like, and I think a lot of people are too. And I'm excited to see what Samsung does and what what Nokia does and what HTC does. 
because ultimately, you know, everybody's going to have to have something like this. Um, yeah. And while a lot of these companies have made them in the past, Samsung's made a lot of smart watches in the past, and Microsoft certainly has a smart watch. Um, you know, it's time for them to, to try again and to do something bigger and better. Awesome stuff. Mr. Stevens, thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome, Mike. Thank you for having me. Where can people uh, get in touch with you or find you? What's the good place for that? Well, you can always find me at Engadget.com, of course. Uh, I am uh, Tim underscore Stevens on, on the Twitter. Uh, and Google+, Plus. Uh, the URL is about 80 characters long with a lot of numbers in it. So you'll just have to search for my name on Google+, and find me there. Do you use Google Plus a lot? I do use Google Plus a lot. In fact, I've got almost as many followers there as I do on on Twitter. Uh, I I like Google Plus because you can have a discussion a lot more easily than than Twitter. You know, if I post something and someone asks me a question and I answer it, then ten minutes later somebody else asks me the same question and I have to answer it again. Uh, with Google Plus, it's all kind of kept right in line, which I like. So I'll put a link to your Google Plus um, profile in our show notes, uh, which are five by five dot tv slash cmd space command space slash fifty so people can find it there if they would like to um you can find me on twitter too i am imike i-m-y-k-e thank you very much for listening to episode 50 of command space and thank you again to to tim for joining me and uh, we'll be back next week take care bye-bye great yeah you're welcome thanks so much it was a pleasure